This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading comes from Psalm 32. You can find it on page 462 of your the Bibles in your rows. You could also find it printed in your bulletin. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord courts no, counts no iniquity, and is whose in spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the, heart, by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Wouldn't it be incredible to look at your life and not have any regrets? Wouldn't it be great to sincerely not have or feel any guilt, no shame, no secrets, nothing to cover up, nothing to hide, nothing to spend, nothing to dig in and get defensive about? You could not just sort of externally and how you portray yourselves to others, but you could actually take a long look at your own life without the fear of what you might find there. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, I think we all long for something like that, that kind of peace of mind, that kind of easiness uh, with ourselves, that uh, kind of untroubled soul. People go about trying to get this in different kinds of ways. For some, the approach is what you might call a kind of uh, do-goodism. That is, hoping our, our good deeds will outweigh our bad. Good deeds is a way of cleansing our conscience. But the question that always hangs out there, if that's your approach, is, is how, how many good deeds would it take to, to tip the, the scales in your favor, to tip the balance in your favor? Or for others, maybe it's success, right? If we think if we can uh, just achieve enough, this will make my life count in such a way that any transgressions couldn't possibly weigh it down. But again, the question is, how much do you have to achieve? And in striving for achievement, are we tempted somewhere along the line to actually add to our guilt by stepping over some, trampling others, overworking perhaps, and thus ignoring the needs of those who are closest to us? Still others try to find absolution by a kind of what you might call religious veneer. That is, we put in our time on Sundays, give a little money, but what if God can't be bought? What if it's, there's not some mechanical equation that we can sort of plug into to absolve our guilt? 
And another approach, maybe this is the most common one, is just to deny the category of guilt and sin altogether. There is no such thing, we might think, and it's just a a socially uh, constructed tool of oppression. But there's problems with that, too, because even though we may have that as a philosophical commitment, almost everybody, at least everybody that I've ever met, admits that there are some things that really are wrong in this world. Some wrongs that you can do. For example, some things that you can do that really hurt someone else. And when that's the case, then there are necessarily then categories of right and wrong, good and evil, and thus guilt incurred. As much as we try to repress the categories of sin and guilt, it does seem like they keep popping up over and over again, like that whack-a-mole game at the fair. You know, you bang those things down, they just keep popping up somewhere else. That's how it is with, with sin and guilt obliterating the concept of guilt, however philosophically attractive, doesn't seem to work in the real world. Finally, others, you know, we just, and maybe this is where you're at this morning, we just give up altogether. You look at your life and you think so many failures, so many sins, so many regrets, so much baggage, it just feels impossible. I'm doomed to a life of guilt and shame. Or maybe then you just try to numb it uh, with substances or with sex or whatever. But listen, I have the best job in the whole world this morning because I get to tell you that there's hope. There's hope. We're in a series called Prayer for All Seasons. We're walking through just the Psalms in the the 30s and all of them give us examples of prayer in different situations or in different seasons of life. And Psalm 32 teaches us how to pray our confession to God. Psalm 32 tells us there is such a thing as forgiveness of sins, that it's possible to have amassed transgressions and still be loved, that it's possible to face yourself, to face your past and not be overwhelmed by shame. Don't we want that? Don't you want that? Let's take a look at this psalm together and what David has to teach us. All right, first, this sense of categories of sin and forgiveness. The, the title to the psalm is, uh, you might notice it in smaller font there in most of your Bibles, uh, there's a title given to it. It's called A Maskell of David. Maskell means uh, something like giving instruction. So David here is giving us instruction about how people who are full of sin, weighed down by sin, can find peace of mind, can find calm in the soul, can find removal of shame. And David actually is a very good candidate uh, to do this because he was, though he was a great king and a great religious leader, David also was a big sinner. And we won't turn there now, but if you were to look this week sometime at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12, you'll find the story of David and Bathsheba. Maybe you've heard the story before, but I'll just summarize a bit. David lusts after a woman who's not his wife. And in fact, Bathsheba is married to one of David's soldiers. And not just any one of his soldiers, to one of his most loyal soldiers. He belonged to a group called David's Mighty Men. And so David takes her into his bed. She gets pregnant. And then David tries to cover the whole thing up, eventually arranging for her husband to be killed in battle. It's an awful story. Story of sin building upon sin. But David does not immediately deal with this sin. Instead, he goes into kind of a a denial, a a stubbornness that he has about it until God sends Nathan the prophet 
to confront him. And if you read Psalm 51, which is a, a companion to Psalm 32, we see David's prayer of confession to God shortly after. The Psalm 51 is kind of immediate to the situation. Psalm 32 is sometime afterward. David is now looking back and reflecting. So Psalm 51 has maybe a little more visceral feel to it. Psalm 32 is a little bit more of a reflection. He's looking back on his guilt, his shame, and eventually the way he found peace and forgiveness. And so let's ask, what do we learn from David's reflection? And the first thing is that we learn that our greatest problem is sin. Our greatest problem is sin. A story uh, about a Sunday school teacher And uh, she asked one of the kids in the class, what must we do in order to be forgiven of our sins? What must we do to be forgiven of our sins? The little boy raises his hand and he says, well, first you got to (laughs) sin, which is, that's right. Uh, The way back begins by admitting our sin. There is no real path to experiencing forgiveness apart from acknowledging our sin. Or to put it another way, to experience forgiveness, you need to know you need forgiveness. And that's not always easy to do. Look at verse 2. It says that uh, the blessed or the happy person is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. And many of us are lying to ourselves. That is, we have a hard time admitting or believing that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. But the Bible unambiguously tells you that you are a sinner. And I'm not singling any one of you out this morning. All of us, right? The Bible tells you that you are not just a sinner. You're full of sin, in fact. It isn't just what we do, but it's part of the very human condition. In that other psalm I told you about, Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, he's saying, I have never known the experience of being outside the ever-present reality of sin. Theologian R.C. Sproul put it this way. He says, the Bible diagnoses sin as a universal, that is everyone, a universal deformity of human nature found at every point in every person. This means that there is nothing about the human experience, nothing about human nature. It's not touched by sin. Now, it doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, But it does mean that every bit of us has been tainted, has been contaminated in some way by sin. It means our intellect, our emotions, our will, our creativity, our relational capacity, all touched by sin. And the Apostle John says in the New Testament, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Our greatest problem is sin. I'm told that the Inuit people, indigenous people group, have seven different words for snow, which makes sense, right? They live in Alaska. They deal with more snow than we do deal with here. And so they have ways in their language of differentiating kinds of snow, wet snow and fluffy snow and the kind of snow you can drill somebody with a snowball with, you know. I'm sure they have a word for that. Well, the Hebrews, in a similar way, they have many different words for sin, for understanding Sin. Well, why? Well, they had come into contact with the holiness of God. And in contrast, then, they knew themselves to be impure. And they had language to reflect that, to make sense of that. And we see just a few of these terms in the first few verses of Psalm 32. If you notice in verse 1, one of the terms that's used is transgression. 
right? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression means, in the Hebrew word, it means a going away or a departure, right? In this case, a going away or a departure, a rebellion against God, a going away from his authority. So a real, clear defiance of authority, a coup against the rightful king. The second word, also in verse 1, the very end there, whose sin is covered. The word in Hebrew is chata, which means to miss the mark, a moral miss. In the ancient world, it was uh, an archery term to describe a person who shoots at a target, but their arrow falls short. A little while back, it seems like eons ago now, but before the pandemic, the staff team had a day where we all went uh, axe throwing. And uh, let me just say, some of us were are bigger sinners than others. Some, their, their axes very, did not get close to the target. I won't say who. That idea of missing the mark, right? Falling short. And then also, thirdly here, in verse 2, iniquity. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Iniquity here, it, the Hebrew word, it means crooked or corrupt or twisted. Reminds me of uh, C.S. Lewis' science fiction novel, Out of the Silent Planet, when the main character from Earth makes his way to another planet that had not fallen into sin. They look at the earthling and they call him the bent one. Something good becoming misshapen. That's what sin does to us. And I wonder, do you see evidence of any of these things in your life? I mean, maybe we don't categorize it in those terms, but, but do you see any evidence of the effects of the guilt of sin? Maybe it it's for you, it's, it's in persistent feelings of regret, or unresolved anger, or constant disappointment in yourself or in others, lack of joy, maybe physical symptoms. We sometimes say guilt eats away at us. You actually feel it in your body. David has something like that in verses 3 and 4. Sin is pervasive. But there's good news here because David not only describes sin and his sin in particular, but he also believes that forgiveness is possible. The person who experiences this, David calls blessed. Blessed. You know, sometimes we look at a person whose life we wish they ha- we had. So uh, somebody, maybe they're rich or famous. Maybe it's more sort of mundane than that. We, we, we look at them, they have a great family or a great job or a talent or a skill that we wish we had. We think, I wish I could be like that. I wish I could have that. I wish I had that kind of life. Well, that's what the word blessed means here in verses 1 and 2. David is describing an envied position. When you look at this person, you want to be like them. And Jesus picks up that same meaning of the word blessed in his Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And David here says the blessed person is the one who's been forgiven. That's the life you want. That's what you should aim for. Peace of mind, calm of soul, clear conscience. Blessed is the person who's been forgiven. And again, there are three words for sin, but there's three words for forgiveness used here in this text as well. Forgiven in verse 1, right? Whose transgression is forgiven. It literally means, uh, that word means to have your sin lifted off of you or carried away from you. Leviticus chapter 16 describes the day of atonement. The high priest would take a live goat and put his hand on the head of the goat and then he would confess the sins of the people. It says all their transgressions, all their sins he would confess. And then it says, Leviticus 16.22, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This is where we get the term scapegoat, right? The sins of the people 
be lifted off of them and carried away, right? Symbolized in the scapegoat. If you've ever been hiking, and I uh, see Matt Jumper up there in the top. I remember he, took, he and Peter, actually, they're both up there in the top, uh, took, took us hiking one time when we were with our youth group uh, when I was a youth pastor. And we had these big packs that we were carrying around uh, all day long, hiking and hiking all around, 70, 80 pounds on your back. And when you've ever had that experience when your pack is finally removed after seven or eight hours of toting this around, it's an amazing feeling. It feels like you're floating afterwards. Well, that's the image that this word gives us here, the burden of sin we've been carrying around. It says it can be lifted from you. You're free. It's crushing power. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. But then secondly, right, whose sin is covered, again in verse 1. Literally, this word means to, to be covered. It means to hide what is shameful. And the image invoked here is, is Genesis 9, when Noah's sons covered his nakedness after he had become drunk and passed out naked. They sins, or the sons rather come in and they cover his shame, literally. And here forgiveness is pictured like this. You know, there's something terrifying about being exposed, isn't there? I mean, some of us have dreams about these things, right? Where you're standing up to give a, a speech in class or something like that, right? And you look down and you realize, I'm not wearing any pants or something like that. It's not, not personal confessions here, but, but this notion of being found out, being exposed, being laid bare, right? There's a reason that that strikes at the, the, the deep part of our psyche, isn't it? To be exposed as a fraud, to be exposed that beneath the surface, to have somebody look and see that you're not who you portrayed yourself to be whether in real life or in social media, whatever it is. But here the idea is that having been exposed, to have God cover over the shame wherever it may be. But then the third way that forgiveness is described here is not reckoning sin to our account. Verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. This describes here what God doesn't do. He doesn't count the sin against us. And the image here is like an accountant's uh, balance ledger, right? So God sees everything. We don't get away with anything, which means he sees all of our sin. He sees all those debits to our account. He sees all the things that are credited, the wrong things credited to our account, right? All the debt that we incur, the good that we leave undone, the, the bad that we do. But in forgiveness, David says, God chooses to remove the record erase the record of our debt. Wrong time of year here for this illustration, but if you could put your head in Christmas a little bit. Uh, a Christmas Carol. I think everybody's probably heard of that at least. Uh, Scrooge. Well, it, by the way, may I suggest the Muppets version, I think, is, is the best one. I'm willing to fight over this as well. The best portrayal of, uh, of a Christmas Carol, but if you get a chance to watch it this year. But the story goes, right, Scrooge sees Jacob Marley his old partner, now dead, come back. And Marley comes to him with this long chain rattling behind him. It's heavy. It makes it hard for him to move around. as a kind of torture him, dragging it about wherever he goes. And Scrooge is terrified at seeing a ghost, seeing his old partner come back. But he's also curious about the chain. And so he asks about it. And Marley explains that the chain is the record of his misdeeds. All his sins have been counted and crafted link upon link and now attached to him forever, weighing him down. And Scrooge says, that's horrible. 
Marley looks at Scrooge and says, you haven't seen the chain that you're crafting for yourself yet. When you experience the forgiveness of God, the chain is cut. The bondage is broken. Blessed is the one whose sins are no longer counted against him, counted against her. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this notion he quotes in Romans chapter 4. He quotes from Psalm 32, and he says that our sin is actually written and transferred or imputed, is the theological word, to Jesus. It's as if it's been taken from our ledger, and it's placed onto Jesus' ledger, and he pays for it on the cross. And then the reverse of the imputation is true. His righteousness, the life that he's lived, has actually been written into our ledger, in our place. The righteousness of God comes to us. The sinfulness that we've incurred comes to him, drapes on him as he paid for it. And so then God counts us as justified, Paul says, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. Psalm 32 tells us then that forgiveness is possible. David experiences this. But it's possible not just for David. Romans 4, the apostle Paul tells us it's available to you. So then that brings us to the next question. Then, How do you experience forgiveness? And here we're thinking mainly forgiveness from God. Here's a story from history. The, uh, the emperor Theodosius uh, once gave an order for the killing of some people in the city of Thessalonica. I'm not sure what the, si- the situation was, but I know that most in the church thought that this was an unjust action on the part of this emperor. So some people were killed in Thessalonica, terrible slaughter actually, and then the emperor was traveling through Milan, and there he went to a worship service. Ambrose was presiding. Ambrose is probably most uh, uh, famous for being the mentor to St. Augustine, but he was also the archbishop of Milan, and the emperor came to worship, and the emperor, or the, uh, emperor came to communion, and Ambrose refused to give him communion. And the emperor said, uh, kind of threw a little bit of a hissy fit about this. He said, uh, that's not fair, you know. And then what's interesting is what he invoked. The emperor said, that's not fair that you won't serve me communion. And I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, David committed, he, he invoked David. He said, David committed worse sins than I did. Ambrose's reply, you've imitated David in his crime. Now imitate him in his repentance. We know from scripture, though, that This didn't come easy for David either. He didn't come clean right away. He dug in his heels. That's what verses 3 and 4 are about. He refused to repent, and his silence was crushing him. It says, verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. It's by the heat of the summer. Pastor Rob Smith tells a story he heard of in his childhood and it continues to stick with him in adulthood. He comes from a rural place in England. And uh, the story was about a young boy who had always wanted a fox as a pet, which is, seems silly, right? Foxes are not domesticated animals, not usually anyway. But he wanted a fox as a pet. His parents kept telling him, no, you can't have a fox, you can't have a fox. Well, finally, he found one outside one day, and he thought it was a small enough fox. He picked it up. He knew his parents were not going to let him have it, so he stuffed it in his shirt, and he took off down the road out of the sight of his parents. He got about, Rob Smith says, he got about half a mile down the road and he collapsed from the loss of blood and later he died. You see, trying to contain the animal in his shirt literally ripped him apart. And this is exactly the picture that David is trying to give us. He's saying, when I tried to conceal my sin, 
from God, from myself, from others. It began to destroy me. It began to erode my personality, to destroy my health, both physically and psychologically. If you don't think this is true, this notion of guilt weighing heavy or eating away at people. I read one psychiatrist this week that said uh, verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32 describe 90% of his patients. And notice in verse 4, these are not just the effects of sin upon him for David as a natural outworking, but he believes that God is involved. He says, your hand was heavy upon me. David says this is an experience of God's displeasure upon him. Your hand was crushing me, he said. Well, how does he escape? Well, first he repents. That is to say, he turns away from his sin. He turns toward God and he confesses. He confesses his sin to God. He doesn't conceal it, but he reveals his sin to God. He's open about it. Now, I want to say here something about confession because I think some of us have a wrong view of confession. Namely, we think that this is some kind of ritual that you can do to get God off your back. That's not it at all. David is talking with God. He's dealing with a person. And as he confesses his sin to God, he does so in a way that you would apologize to somebody that you've wronged or offended in some way. It's not a ritual for David as much as it is a deeply personal, relational act. In fact, I would argue the more personal your relationship with God, the more confessing of sins you'll do. Because the closer you are to God, the more intimacy you experience with God, the more concerned you'll be when there's damage done to the fellowship, the more zealous you'll be to be honest, to make things right. Verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Confession really is about acknowledging reality. Or to put it another way, confession is agreeing with God about the state of your life, about the state of your soul. It's coming to God, not hiding your faults, not spinning your mistake, not shading the truth, but admitting our sin and asking for forgiveness. I mentioned earlier that Ambrose was Augustine's mentor. Well, Psalm 32 was Augustine, St. Augustine's favorite chapter in all the Bible. He had it inscribed on the wall near his bed before he died so that he could meditate on it better each day. He, he liked it, he said, because the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. Because once you know yourself to be a sinner, then you begin to appreciate your need for a Savior. So let's talk about some just practical application here at the end. If we're boiling the whole thing down, what does David want for us here? What is he trying to tell us? What is he trying to instruct us, right? He says here in, uh, what is it, in verse 8, he says, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. What is it he's trying to teach us? He's trying to teach us that we are to be offering prayers of confession on a regular basis. We're to be laying before God our sin and our guilt and asking for forgiveness. Verse 6, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Now, do note here who this psalm is written to. He says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer. Which means then, right, the psalm is written to believers, those who believe in God. 
Which means then the prayer to offer prayers of confession to God is meant to be something that's done by people who are in fellowship with God. It's meant to be done regularly. It's true to begin a relationship with God begins with confession. It begins with repentance and faith in God. But it's also the way that we continue in our relationship with God. It's the way we grow in our relationship with God. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you. That means you never graduate out of this as a Christian. And we practice it here, right? One of the reasons we do this together on Sundays, confession of sin together, is to practice here on the morning of the start of the week, which should be pervading all through the rest of the week in our personal lives with God. It's why also Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, right? he's given us the model for how to pray day to day. And he says, forgive us our sins, right? It's part of the prayer. Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. But David doesn't just confess his sins. He also trusts and takes joy in the fact that God is his Savior. Verse, uh, verse 7, excuse me, he says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Do you see how important this is? If all we think about is our sin, right? If we just get introspective, and all we do is keep our eyes on our sin, you're not going to want to come to confession, right? Because it's just going to be a deeply uh, depressing experience on a regular basis. But also beyond that, right, we're going to be more tempted to hide. We're be more tempted to perhaps explain away the things that we've done wrong. But David can do this without being wrecked because he believes that God is his Savior. You're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Now listen, there's all kinds of ways to apply the practice of confession in your life. I'm just going to share with you how I'm trying to do this, and uh, you can do with that what you will. I'm, I'm going to just tell you what I'm doing, all right? In the morning, as I read the Bible, I try to pray in response to whatever passage that I'm reading. And inevitably, when I read in the passage, I see things that uh, God is prescribing us to do, and I'm realizing I'm not doing it. I see other things that, uh, uh, you know, that, that uh, uh, he asks us not to do, and I realize I'm doing it. And so you read these things, right, and I'm praying in response to them. And so, for example, if the passage is about love, and I recognize I'm not as loving as I should be, I try to confess those ways that I haven't been loving. And the important thing here, I think, is to confess our sins particularly, right? Don't just leave it out in the realm of the ethereal and so I try to confess, for example, ways that I've not been loving to my wife or to my kids or to my mom. Or, you know, we're going to pastors and elders from the church, we're going to general assembly in a few uh, weeks, and uh, I hate meetings in general, and I tend to find myself hating people who make those meetings miserable. And so I confess those things, right, when that happens. But then I don't just stay there, because, again, this could be a morbid experience, but then I thank God that Jesus died for me. Now I can lay a hold of God's mercy and forgiveness. And then I ask for God to work in me, to change me, so that I might be more like him. That's what I do in the morning. But then in the evening, right, I take a few moments and try to when I can. I'm not so exhausted that I fall asleep, but I take a few moments to think through my day. And as I'm thinking through things to give thanks for, inevitably I'm also thinking about ways that I've failed. Or maybe I even ask myself, where have I been proud? Where have I been angry? Where have I been self-centered? And then I remind myself that God's mercies are new every morning. But listen, don't overcomplicate this. If what I just described to you is not helpful to you, just forget it. All right? It's just a one, one shot at it. 
But don't overcomplicate this. The important thing is to come to the Lord. Come confessing. That's the invitation of this passage. Not to hide your sin, not to minimize your sin, not to deflect your guilt or dig your heels in, but to confess it. Look at what David says in verse 9. He says, be not like a horse or a mule. What do horses and mules do? They dig in. They're stubborn. Don't be like them. But instead, he says, be quick to repent. Don't wait to be cornered. Don't wait for the crisis. Don't wait to be in the experience of being gnawed away by guilt in verse 3 and 4. Of course, come then. Come more regularly. Come willingly. Come quickly. Come often. Asking for God's forgiveness. I just want to close by saying this. You know, the goal of this whole teaching, it's, it's not shame. It's freedom. This idea of regularly repenting, regularly confessing our sins to God, the goal is not shame. The goal is freedom. Freedom to stop hiding. Freedom to stop pretending. And I really do think honest confession of sin begins to set us free. For one thing, it'll make you more humble. Right? If you're honest about your own sin, if you're used to talking about it, well, then you're not going to be nearly as likely to look down your nose at other people, to wag your fingers at others. If you've been confessing your sins to the Lord, it takes a, a particular brand of obtuseness that we're not above, uh, but then to, to, to judge other people. But the more we get uh, comfortable with that conversation with the Lord, admitting our sin, the less judgy we get of each other. It'll make you more humble. It'll also make you more teachable. In the book of Proverbs, is chock full of declarations to that effect. That regular confession will open you up to more wisdom and open you up to more sources of that wisdom. Make you more teachable. And then finally, it'll improve your worship because you'll be more appreciative of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Listen, it's a simple way to think about it. I mean, if you think you are a little bit of a sinner in need of a little bit of forgiveness, then you're probably in your mind going to have a little bit of a Savior. On the other hand, if you're well acquainted with a deep sense of your own sin and a desperate sense of your need for forgiveness and mercy, then Jesus is going to appear to you enormous in the forgiveness that he offers. He's a great Savior. And you'll be able to say with David in verses 10 and 11, many are the sorrows of the wicked, among which he counted himself for a while, but then steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray together, and then we'll continue to worship the Lord this morning. Lord God, I pray uh, that this teaching would rest on us as good news. Uh, Lord, would you correct any... um, uh, imperfections in the way I might have communicated it even this morning. My goal is not to have something else weigh us down, but indeed to do what I think Psalm 32 does for David, does for us, that this can be a truth that can help set us free. Would you teach us in the rhythm of laying before you our sins and our failures? Would you help us to believe that when we do come to you, we meet a Savior who welcomes us in kindness and mercy. Would you surround us with your steadfast love, as David says there at the end? Would you make us glad in the forgiveness and mercy that we experience so that we can then go and share it with others? This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcity.org. C-I-N-C-Y dot org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.